Two and a Half Admins, episode 169. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Cloudflare have published a post-mortem on their recent control plane and analytics outage, and it makes for quite interesting reading. Yeah, there's a, a couple different bits here that are really also provide insight into the data center industry outside of Cloudflare as well. But beginning on Thursday, November 2nd, around 11.43 UTC, Cloudflare's control plane and analytics services experienced an outage. The control plane of Cloudflare consists primarily of the customer-facing interface for all of our services, including the website and the APIs. The incident lasted from November 2nd at 11.43 until November 4th at 04.25. So that's like a day and a half, which is quite a lot to not be able to modify anything in the, the Cloudflare infrastructure. We were able to restore most of our control plane using our disaster recovery facility on November 2nd at 1757. So not quite as bad, but many customers would not have experienced issues with most of our products after the disaster recovery data center came online. But what's really interesting is some of the reporting out of the data center itself, Flexential Data Centers in Hillsboro, Oregon, which hosts the PDX04 data center for Cloudflare. They say at 0850 UTC, Portland General Electric, the utility company that provides service to the data center, had an unplanned maintenance event affect one of the independent power feeds that goes into the data center. This event shut down one of the feeds into the data center. So the data center claims that to supplement the power, they booted up their generators, and that we should have kept everything online, but they chose not to inform Cloudflare about it. And Cloudflare says, had they informed us, we could have stood up a team to monitor the facility closely and move control planes to another facility to avoid the problem or whatever. But it said it's unusual for the data center not to just move fully to generators. So they were still getting power from other feeds from the utility company instead of just going completely isolated. And the speculation here is that Flexential was part of the power company's dispatchable standby generator program, which is basically when the utility company is having a problem, they get the data centers to spin up their generators and feed power back to the grid in order to make up for the shortfall caused by the power line problems. That uncomfortable sensation, by the way, that's the feeling of things in your brain readjusting as you suddenly realize how massive a portion of our power budget data centers actually are that the grid is like, hey, <laughs> can y'all help us out here for a minute? Yeah. yeah, like most data center generators, of which they have three or more, are over a megawatt each. So that's quite a good chunk of houses that you can each power. Yeah, that's not your camping generator. Yeah, like they're generally literally a locomotive engine and a generator just not on train wheels. And so the problem being that obviously if they're sending all their power back to the grid because they're getting paid for that, the power is not going to the data center, which is the thing they're supposed to be getting paid to do. Now, of course, the battery backups at the data center are supposed to be able to bridge the gap between when the generators actually can get up to speed and provide the power or switch from providing to the grid to providing to the data center and not cause a problem. But it turns out the batteries that are supposed to be scaled to last for at least 10 minutes started failing after four minutes, likely due to just not good maintenance and uh, upkeep on the batteries or not proactively replacing old batteries quickly enough. Or testing them. Yeah. It's almost like we're uncovering, I don't know, a pattern of sloppiness on the part of 
data center management? That couldn't be right, could it? It's not like they were trying to cut costs by not doing all the maintenance. If that were the case, then the next thing that would have happened was would be, I don't know, some kind of breaker failure. Oh, wait, <laughs> wait, that is actually what happened next. Well, yeah, and they'd also only have one person there overnight who'd only been working there for a few weeks and didn't really know what was going on. Well, then the other problem was once they tried to fix the problems, oh, the access cards for the doors require power, which we don't have. Shades of Facebook. Yeah. I don't think it's any surprise to our longtime listeners that none of the three of us are particularly fond of Cloudflare. But with that said, it was interesting reading the uh, he said, she said between Cloudflare's representatives and the data center's representatives, because Cloudflare is like, here's a timeline of everything that happened in excruciating detail and, you know, exactly what was wrong, why and how it could have been better. And the data center is essentially going, no, and, and how'd you know about that? <laughs> it's just incredibly weaselly. And if you, like myself, are a practicing system administrator, you'll probably feel a, this feeling of familiarity and annoyance as you read through the data center's responses, because you've almost certainly heard the exact same kind of weaseling yourself far too many times from a vendor that screwed up and doesn't want to admit it. I think we do have to give Cloudflare some credit here. Like you said, none of us are huge fans of theirs, but this is pretty transparent. They talk about not just the problems with the data center. They say this shouldn't have been our problem. We shouldn't have let ourselves be taken down by a whole data center disappearing. We should have been more robust than that. That is true. And yes, they they absolutely deserve credit for that. They they did take that on as their own responsibility to say, yeah paraphrasing very heavily, but I think pretty accurately, say, yeah, the data center sucked, but also it's on us for trusting a data center. We shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Well, yeah, specifically they say, we also must expect that entire data centers may fail. So yes, don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's like, (laughs) it's the whole point of Cloudflare is they have all these data centers and they're like, yeah, we run our whole control plane out of the one in Portland because it's near our offices or whatever. Yeah, but they do have a high availability set up with three different data centers. Right, but they only tested it with the other two being down and parts of Portland being down, but not the entirety of Portland going down. Now, to be fair to Joe, this is how high availability works. It's a very expensive thing that you can write on a sheet and convince somebody way high up in the brass that you haven't, and it's awesome, and it doesn't work. (laughs) Well, not if you've got dependencies on a single point of failure. There are always dependencies on single points of failure. You can shift them around. You can move them from A to B. You can pick one that you maybe think is less likely to fail as often as another, but there's always a single point of failure and there are always dependencies on it. Yep. And the other problem you end up is the more complicated your HA gets, the more likely it's going to take you out during not an outage and cause an outage. Mm Mm-hmm. And the more complex it is when it does take you out, the greater the odds are that it's going to do so in a really creative way that'll be fun to try to unscramble. Yeah, they talk about how because they move quite quickly with their development, that's why they've ended up with these dependencies on that single point of failure that they didn't realize and that they need to be much more robust in the future about making sure that everything is properly distributed across their three HA sites. Yeah, and just in general, a lot of services, especially when you follow the microservices model and some other ones, most places don't ever actually test and attempt a cold restart. Move fast, break stuff. Yeah, when you have all these services that have interdependencies, 
what happens when all of them are down at once? And you can't start A because it depends on B, but you can't start B because it depends on C, and you can't start C because it depends on A. Well, and also they talk about how when it finally did come back up, it was just overwhelmed and they had to implement rate limiting because they had a lot of queued stuff at the edge and it was just suddenly, right, the floodgates are open and it just fell over. Yeah, probably means they need some kind of back pressure, a way for the API to tell people, hey, slow down a little bit. I'm just waking up here. (laughs) But yeah, this one's definitely the data center was lacking maintenance and so on. I've been impacted by that myself. And then the data center failed to communicate clearly what was going on because the Cloudflare could have stood up more of a team sooner rather than after everything was already offline and gone from there. What I found interesting was that even once the data center came back online, Cloudflare management took the decision to let people rest and give them a few hours sleep before they just went and sorted it out. You know, they failed over to their European site for as much as they could. And they said, right, everyone take a few hours rest and then we'll come back to this because we'll end up with more mistakes if we just plow on with no sleep and stuff. Yeah, it's really important thing to realize that if, if you've had a code red going for a couple of hours or all night in this case, that at some point giving people rest is going to give you a lot better outcomes than here's some Red Bull, keep going. <laughs> yeah. I prefer Monster, thank you. I run on pure rage. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. The holiday season can be hectic, and that's where HelloFresh's 15-minute meals come in. These quick fixes help you get a wholesome meal on the table in less time than it takes to get delivery. Hosting friends and family this holiday? HelloFresh Market has just what you need to please a crowd without the hassle from photo-worthy charcuterie boards to mouth-watering desserts. Alan tried HelloFresh and was impressed with the recyclable, sustainable packaging and the fact that the meat was locally sourced. He liked all the recipes and really appreciated having the exact amount of each of the ingredients. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 25adminsfree and use code 25adminsfree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash 25adminsfree with code 25adminsfree. Quick update on the Android 14 multiple accounts and getting locked out of storage situation. There's now been the monthly patch for the various Pixel devices and this is fixed with a bit of an asterisk. The good news is we've issued a patch for the problem. The bad news is your data might be gone forever. and. Uh, Google just seems to be fine with that. Most users who simply were locked out of a profile or didn't have access to the storage for that profile, but were able to use their phone successfully in the secondary profile, for the most part, those users seem to be fine. The patch has restored full functionality to them. However, the users who were stuck in a boot loop are still stuck in a boot loop. And the patch can get them access to the phone itself in some cases, but not to the data. Again, Google's answer here just seems to be, well, that's just how that is. There is no indication of a plan to release a tool or, you know, give those users instructions to USB tether those devices maybe and, you know, try to get at the data in some alternate fashion. 
probably it's possible, but would be quite technical and would involve sharing some technical details with end users that Google doesn't really want to is my best guess, because you're going to have to deal with like, you know, on disk encryption at that point as well. And if you're Google, you have all the secrets, you can deal with it one way or another, but you politically may not want to deal with it in the way that you would have to, to actually restore access to that data. Yeah. The big problem here seems to be, even though lots of people reported this issue, one of the bugs in the issue tracker had a thousand plus upvotes and and 850 comments of people locked out from their various devices and so on. But it wasn't until two separate rounds of news coverage that Google finally acknowledged the bug after over 20 days. And even then, they didn't stop the update from continuing to roll out and affecting more people. And then the first time they released a fix for it, it was a Google App Store fix that your phone might have downloaded and installed, but didn't apply until you reboot the phone. And it's unlike the OS update doesn't really prompt you like, hey, you should really reboot now. And so it put a lot more people at risk just because Google responded so slowly to the issue. Yeah. How often do you reboot your phone? For me, it's once a month when I get these updates. Yeah, when it makes me. Yeah. And so when you get the fix for this as an App Store update rather than an OS update, it doesn't give you that prompt. It really should do. Well, Ron Amadeo wrote an article about this for Ars Technica, and the last couple of paragraphs are what I can only describe as tearing Google a new one. And as Ron's former colleague, I would like to take this opportunity to read those closing paragraphs in full. This whole fiasco has been a complete failure of most of the controls and protections Google has in place in Android. The company slowly rolls out updates to stop problems before it hits a wide number of users, but it failed to pull the update when problems arose. Android has dual system partitions so that you always have a backup if the device fails to boot after an update, but that system didn't work here because Google's boot failure detection isn't accurate enough. The company shipped a quick fix patch via Google Play system updates in the Play Store, but because those passively wait around for a reboot to get applied, users still got hit by the bug days after the patch came out. Android is supposed to have a data backup system for apps, but because that doesn't work well and isn't forced on every app, many users have no backups at all. We get sold technical explainers for all these features, but when they were really needed, none of these poorly thought out half-baked systems worked. This disaster is a complete technical failure of several Android systems, and many changes need to happen. Get them, Ron. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we should uh, dub in some cheering at that point. <laughs> for sure. Like, especially the point on the dual system partition, right? That boot looping shouldn't be possible because when it happens, it should just fall back to the other image. But it doesn't do that because it thought it was successfully booting. When I built a similar system for updating servers, it makes sure the server stays up for like an hour, not just that it finishes the boot process before it says, okay, I think this image is good enough to be the new default. The dual boot failures, it's like, uh, the good news is we designed your phone like an enterprise router. The bad news is we designed your phone like an enterprise router that was built by drunk assholes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, it should maybe be at least you have to unlock the phone successfully once before it becomes, actually, we're going to stick with this image kind of thing. And yet the data backup thing for the people that do have to do a factory reset wouldn't be a big deal if they can just restore their data, but turns out doesn't actually work that smoothly. And as approximately a million point three commenters pointed out in the uh, replies to Ron's article, the difficulty of getting your data backed up is just mind-blowing. Like, even aside from this particular issue, 
why in the year 2023 does it still require like a whole freaking day of your time to get a new phone set up? There's all these systems that supposedly claim that like, oh, you know, it'll just be like your your old phone was. And, you know, you've got Samsung has theirs and Google has one of their own. And sometimes they're over the air and sometimes they're cloud-based. And sometimes you're supposed to directly USB tether the two phones together. And no matter what you do, at the end, what you have is a two-thirds done mess that's slightly better than not having done that at all and set the whole thing up from scratch, but only slightly. Let's do some feedback then. Reese and a bunch of other people mentioned Winget because we were talking about package managers on Windows and you were talking about Chocracy, Jim. And Winget is built in and why didn't we mention that? So I hadn't heard of it, but after the feedback, I gave it a quick try. The problem I found is that it doesn't really solve the underlying problem that we were talking about. So I fired up Winget and asked it for KeePass, and it came up with a big list of things, including KeePass XC, KeePass Windows, PT.KeePass, KeePass Reader, Modern KeePass, KeepWeb, OffPass, a bunch of different things. And it was not clear from that output which one is the legitimate one and which one is maybe an add-on tool and which ones are bogus stuff that you don't want. So much like doing an apt search then, where you just get a bunch of random stuff and you have to work out what's the legit one. Yeah. Or the main one. And even the one that I think is actually the legitimate main one, there's not an easy way to tell that that's actually the app you're looking for and not something else. It just has a random person's name on it. I don't think the app search comparison is is actually all that valid because generally the the problem when you app search something and you get just a whole screen full of hits is that you don't really quite know what you're looking for and you're not sure which are the library and which are the application. Yeah. But you're not generally in a Linux distro repository going to find 20 different versions of the same password manager all in the repos. Yeah. Which is what Alan's talking about happening with Winget. And, you know, which one do you want? It's not just a case of knowing enough to know, okay, well, I don't want lib whatever, you know, I want the actual thing. Mm. It's which of all of these actual things. And it does look like uh, Winget combines multiple sources. There's a source column, but you can see, oh, KeePass Win comes from the Microsoft Store, and this other KeePass comes from the Winget repo. And some of them have version numbers and some of them don't, and some of them just have hex codes of source and some of them have something that looks a bit more like like the android package name but isn't and so yeah there's no way to tell which is the legit keypass and which one might be something else that's in the repo so why did you recommend chocolatey jim over winget well chocolatey has been around for a lot longer and uh, it's a lot more end user friendly it's very clear what you're installing with Chocolatey. You can see it right in front of you. You're not going to get presented with a weird laundry list of, you know, 20 different versions of the same thing. You know, if you want to install KeePass, well, it's right there and it's KeePass. If you want to install Apache or Nginx, they're there, they're Apache or Nginx. It is a limited system. There, there aren't that many different pieces of software on Chocolatey, but the ones that are there tend to be ones that an awful lot of people need and need to keep up with. And yeah, it's just, it's easy and you can't screw it up, which is a lot more than I can say for Winget. A couple of people got in touch about Toshiba hard drives. Darkwing said, I think you're a little out of date on your info. Toshiba has already followed the lead of WD and Seagate and made easily understandable branding for their drives based on use case. And then they link to 
Toshiba consumer internal hard disk drives. And Paul says, you were discussing Toshiba drives, and it seemed to suggest a lack of useful model names, and only hard to decipher numbering. However, isn't X300 performance desktop, P300 standard desktop, N300 NAS, S300 surveillance, and MG enterprise how they differentiate the lines? The main problem is that X300 isn't one model of hard drive that's all performance desktop drives are X300s. And then inside of that, there can be self-encrypting drives, not. And so they're more of a line of hard drives. So it's not a specific model, it's a series of models. And especially we were talking about the enterprise stuff where they don't necessarily have the differentiators. And because a lot of Toshiba's focus is the OEM market, you get model numbers that are just a string without the magic decoder ring, you can't tell what the sector sizes are. Is it 512 bytes? Is it 520 bytes? Is it 4096, etc.? And you can very easily end up with a drive that doesn't work the way you would hope to, especially if you accidentally get a surveillance drive and it's not going to be very good in your NAS. Or if you accidentally get a 520-byte sector drive and you have never encountered that before, and your drive doesn't even look like a drive when you plug it into your computer. Like, I see a device there, but my computer doesn't even think it's a block storage device. And then you get to discover the joys of low-level formatting and figuring out even what the application that you need to install is that will do the low-level formatting, which will be different depending on which operating system you happen to be using. Uh, I don't even remember what the one was in Linux. I I had this exact experience. I ended up with 520-byte sector SSDs that I was not expecting and had to figure out how to deal with that on the fly. And uh, I mean, it took me a good hour and a half or so to find what I needed to know to do it under Ubuntu. And what I learned how to do under Ubuntu would not be applicable under FreeBSD, nor would it be applicable under Windows. Yeah. And especially with the the example of the 520 byte sectors, the reason for that is they have the extra eight bytes to put uh, message authentication code for each sector. But it means the drive will literally refuse to write any amount of data that's not aligned to 520 bytes at a time because it expects that Mac to be there for each one. And yeah, if you just try to use normal software on it, it will just, the drive will fail every write or be like, hey, the checksum doesn't match right. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues, without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash 25A to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an ad-free feed of just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. 
And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Russell says, Beyond the obvious, it's hard and complicated. Is it possible to actually host a mail server at home and meet requirements? Gotta love the economy and wonder about setting up a VPS instance or something to WireGuard into from my home server to get by the port 25 rules and be able to do the right DNS settings. Am I on the right path or am I totally nuts? If so, could you give me a little clearer or more direct guidance? Well, my first question is, if you're considering a a VPS, why not just put the mail server on the VPS? What's the value of having it at home? Yeah, that's that's ultimately where we're going to get to. And there are some possible answers why you might still want to do it at home. One of the things that I was frustrated by, especially in earlier years when I was first starting to host things in data centers, I got very frustrated at how expensive such relatively wimpy hardware was to lease, you know, versus what I had sitting at home. It was like, why can't I just, you know, put my ball and workstation at home directly on the internet and serve things from there? It's, you know, several times more powerful than the servers they expect me to lease. To a degree, that that can still be a thing, especially if you want like a lot of storage. It can be considerably less expensive to have that storage at home. And then your VPS can just be a relay. Like it's not permanently storing the mail. It's just passing it in both directions. Because ultimately, you can't have your mail server at home just directly contact the rest of the internet. The rest of the internet will refuse to talk to it because it's on a residential IP address. So yes, you do need the VPS. And then that absolutely does raise the question, shouldn't the VPS just be your mail server? And 99 times out of 100, the answer is yes. That's just going to be a lot more convenient and less complicated to do it that way. But if for whatever reason you need a lot more of what you have at home than what you can afford to pay for in the data center, then yes, you can just set up a mail relay on a cheap $5 VPS. But we still hate recommending this kind of thing because you can do that. But even when you're adding the the VPS in a data center somewhere, it's still a nightmare getting this set up. And it is a lot of maintenance, ongoing maintenance. You know, it's not just like, well, this was really hard to set up, but now I set it up and I'm done. No, this was really hard to set up and now you need to troubleshoot the crap out of it. And it will take you a while to find all the minor bugs that weren't obvious to begin with. And you'll have to deal with deliverability issues, both outbound and inbound. It never stops. Most places where you can rent a VPS, especially for $5, are not going to have good mail deliverability either because the spammers can rent a VPS just as easily. And maybe they get shot down quickly, but it still becomes a significant source. So most places where you can rent a VPS are going to have almost as bad deliverability for email as your home connection. Microsoft dev the entirety of Linode. The whole thing, not even just one data center. All of Linode, they black for months with Office 365 and MSN and, uh, you know, the the live.com. And then after several months, they finally, with no fanfare and no, no announcement, unblack holds Linode from Office 365, but the residential stuff, you know, the, uh, the outlook.com and the live.com and MSN.com, those were still black hold. And again, no communication, no visibility into it. And, you know, Several more months later, finally, somebody removed that rule, and it was, again, possible to actually deliver mail if your mail server's at Linode, which mine is, and I had to deal with that for months. And if you're not willing to deal with those kinds of things, running your own mail server is not for you. 
So sending mails, I know, is a huge problem, but I didn't realize that receiving mails was an issue. Receiving the email in and of itself is not really an issue, but you have to filter it because just like everybody else, 99% of everything that comes to your mail server is going to be stuff you do not want to look at. It's not good for you. It's malware. It's spam. It's grifts. It's, you know, gray bullshit. It's $500,000 of working capital deposited into your account overnight, mailed to you, you know, 10 times a day. And you have to filter out as much of it as you can. But that means when you, you know, stand up your spam assassin instance, and hopefully you know that you need to be using spam C and not the fat spam assassin client for it, all this nonsense, well, you're going to have some false positives as well. You're going to filter some things that you shouldn't. You're going to bounce some things that maybe you didn't want to bounce, and you need to know how to deal with that. You need to know the difference between bouncing a message and terminating the SMTP conversation with a 500 or 400 error, because they're very different. And if you don't know the difference and you're just blindly low on setting up a mail server, you can end up spamming half the internet when your email address ends up being on a Joe job and, you know, people start sending things in and your server starts bouncing it, but it's actually bouncing it, not just terminating the conversation, which means your mail server is now emailing innocent third parties copies of this crap. There's a lot going on here. And if you're interested in tackling every last bit of that so that, you know, you can be the person who understands all the arcane intricacies, I applaud that. That's that's awesome. Like genuinely, seriously. My thing is, I just want to make sure everybody understands that that's really the only reason to do it is because you're a masochist who truly wants to be like one of the arcane Illuminati, no matter how painful it is getting there. This topic is so complicated that the guy I co-authored the two ZFS books with is doing his own entire book on just how to run a mail server. And uh, I'm pretty sure the beginning of the book is like, if you don't have to, don't. (laughs) (laughs) But he's given away chapter zero for free and has opened up sponsorship uh, so that if you want to pre-order the book and hurry it along to get it finished, then you can do that. But it will be a complete from the beginning to the end how to set up all the various bits of a mail server. But knowing that you need an entire book that's basically full thickness of a paperback in order to do it, you might decide that maybe that's not the right thing to be doing. Also, to be fair, if it's a complete beginning to end guide to standing up a mail server from scratch, that means it'll probably be at least a little obsolete by the time the book publishes. Yeah, sadly, everything keeps changing. That even happened with the ZFS book. And especially now, I'm like, wow, we really need to find time to do the second edition. ZFS is just so much more discoverable than the back end of mail servers, though. That is true. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.